2 Kings chapter 18. Let me uh, set it up by saying this. We're going to continue to look at this study on King Hezekiah over the next couple of chapters. If you were here with us before Christmas, we read the overview of his life and looked at how we should desire to have the faith of Hezekiah, this man who fully relied on the Lord, trusted him with all his heart. And today, though, in this passage, we're going to encounter really the first problem in Hezekiah's life. There's going to be three that we're going to look at in the next couple of chapters, but this is the first challenge of his reign. And it deals with the Assyrian king who's attacked the city of Judah. Well, I mean, he's attacked the cities of Judah, and now he's made his way to Jerusalem. And it's on his way to Jerusalem, while he's headed there, that Hezekiah makes his first mistake. What Hezekiah tries to do is apologize to the king of Assyria, thinking that if he apologizes, that maybe he might relent and let up from trying to take over the city. He tries to barter with him. And what does this mean that the king asks for in a barter? Okay, well, I'll just tell you then, a whole bunch of money. If you're in a barter system, he's going to say, give me all you got. He asks for a ton. And so what does Hezekiah end up doing? He ends up paying for the request, and he gives this... All, it gives the Syrian king all the silver in the temple, all the silver from his treasuries, and then he ends up stripping the gold from the doors of the temple to give to the king, thinking that maybe that will appease him. I mean, this is millions upon millions upon millions of dollars in our day. Not only that, I mean, taking it out of the temple to give to him, thinking it might work. But boy, was he wrong. Because as we will read today, the Assyrian king marches into Jerusalem seeking to overthrow it. And what we find out is that Hezekiah learns a very important lesson. And that is that bartering with the evil one never comes out in your favor. If you think today that you can say, okay, I, you know, maybe I can do this, but maybe I won't. I, I can get this close to the line and everything's going to be okay. It's just not. We see that today by looking at the speech that comes from the spokesman of the king of Assyria. So let's pick up with the story there. There's a lot of scripture here, but it's a, it's a good story. Verse 17, it says, Then the king of Assyria sent the field marshal, the chief of staff, and his royal spokesman, along with a massive army from Lachish to the king Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They advanced and came to Jerusalem, and they took their position by the aqueduct of the upper pool, by the road of the launderer's field. They called for the king, but Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court, of the, secretary, the court secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the court historian, came out to meet them. Then the royal spokesman said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. What are you relying on? You think mere words are strategy and strength for war. Who are you now relying on so that you have rebelled against me? Now look, you're relying on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff that will pierce the hand of anyone who grabs it and leans on it. This is what Pharaoh king of Egypt is to all who rely on him. Suppose you say to me, we rely on the Lord our God. Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship at this altar in Jerusalem? So now make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able to supply riders for them. How then can you drive back a single officer among the, the least of my master's servants? How can you rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? 
Now have I attacked this place to destroy it without the Lord's approval? The Lord said to me, attack this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to the royal spokesman, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak with us in Hebrew within earshot of the people on the wall. But the royal spokesman said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words only to your master and to you? Hasn't he also sent me to the men who sit on the wall, destined with you to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? The Bible holds nothing back, that's for sure. (laughs) The royal spokesman stood and called out loudly in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He can't rescue you from my power. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to rely on the Lord by saying, Certainly the Lord will rescue us. This city will not, will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for this is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and surrender to me. Then each of you may eat from his own vine and his own fig tree, and each may drink water from his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, so that you may live and not die. But don't listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying the Lord will rescue us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever rescued his land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seraphim, Hena, and Eva? Have they rescued Samaria from my power? Who among all the gods of the lands has rescued his land from my power? So will the Lord rescue Jerusalem from my power? But the people kept silent. They did not answer him at all. For the king's command was, don't answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the court historian, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and reported to him the words of the royal spokesman. It's a pretty intense story, is it not? You can almost see it. The standoff, you've got the the, the city and the people standing on the walls, and then you've got the army out there and the spokesman speaking over them. It's an intense story to look at. Now, next week, we're going to look at Hezekiah's response to this very speech of the spokesman. But today, I want to just analyze this speech. Here's why. In December, um, we looked at the first kind of passage about Hezekiah. I told you, we looked at Hezekiah's faith. And there's one thing that Hezekiah was known for. The very... the very virtue he was known for was his reliance upon God. It says that he relied upon God. We talked about that meant to put your full weight upon the Lord, right? To lean everything on him. But you know what's interesting about this very speech is that the very crux of the very speech is about their reliance. Six different times the spokesman brings up the fact that, they're rely- that he says you're relying on the wrong thing. Who are you going to rely on? Who are you going to place your faith and trust in? Why is he doing that? Well, he's doing that to try to sow seeds of doubt in Hezekiah's heart and the people of Israel's heart. Because he knows if he can get them to doubt the fact that God might be for them, before all of these people, then he can get in and win the city of Jerusalem. What I also find interesting is that when you study the Bible and you see the way that Satan works, you see that he works in the same exact way. He wants to do the same thing to our hearts. 
He wants to sow in seeds of doubt so that we might question why in the world we would ever rely on God. A great example of this is the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 and the way that he speaks to Adam and Eve. Look at this passage with me. It says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Listen to this. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And you and I have been paying for it ever since. Thanks a lot, Eve, right? That's what we can say today. Just kidding. Adam was clearly there, so let's not put all the blame on Eve for this. We see in both of these stories, I believe, the tactics of the way in which Satan loves to work. Sowing in these seeds of doubt. And that's what I want you to see today is three tactics of how Satan works that we see from this passage and that we see from Genesis chapter 3. The first one is this. Here's what Satan wants. Satan wants you to doubt God's power. Verse 35, the spokesman says, Who among all the gods of the land has rescued his land from my power? So will the Lord rescue Jerusalem from my power? The Assyrian king is saying that since no other people's gods had rescued them, who were they to think that their god would save them from this Assyrian king? You see, let me explain to you how Satan wants to work in your life. Satan wants nothing more than for you to think that God is incapable of saving you and helping you through your trials. He's not necessarily trying to convince you that he won't do it, but that he can't do it. What he wants you to believe is that God cannot intervene, that he's not powerful enough to do it. Here's why. Because if Satan can get you to doubt that God can do it, he can then convince you that maybe you can do it. Do you see the difference there? Here's the proof that we have gotten to a place where we have begun to doubt God's power. It's when we begin to take things into our own hands. What we begin to do is say subconsciously or consciously that, God, I don't know if you can do this, therefore I've got to do it. It's amazing how quickly we can convince ourselves that maybe we are actually strong enough. Maybe we do know enough. Maybe we're like Eve and says, well, you know what? It does look pretty good. I'll give you an example of how this has happened in my life. Um, about a month and a half ago, I had some of the Builders for Christ team come over to help me with replacing some wood siding on the side of my house. In the summer, I sat down with Jim Lillard and Steve Bagwell at, at dinner one night, and I was telling them about some of my siding that was rotting, and I was just asking them about what it would take to get it done. And Steve Bagwell, knowing that I have to go to him for everything because I can't do it myself, looked at me and he said, you know, maybe we should come out there and look at it. And I was like, ah, I'm, I'll be okay. I, I, I think you'll be good. And he goes, no, Justin, I think we should come out there and look at the siding on the side of your house. I was like, okay, fine. So they came out and looked at it and they said, Justin, this isn't just like one piece that you've got to replace. 
It's the whole siding around the chimney that needs to be replaced on your house. That's what Jim Lillard said. And I'm like, so do you think I can just put it up there and, and, and get it done myself? And they looked at me and they said, I think we need to take care of this for you, Justin. You can't do this yourself. And I'm like, what do you, you, you think that? Here's the proof that I didn't need to be the one doing this. They all showed up one day to help me out, Builders for Christ, very thankful for them. And they were so... I don't know if this is a word, unconfident of what I could do, that the job that I was given was to pick up the wood that was taken off the house and just put it in the back of the truck. That's what they said. Justin, we got a great job for you. Here's what you, this is going to be great. Hey, Justin, why don't you talk about making some of that coffee? Can you do that for us right now? And I'm like, you don't need me to, you know, put in some of the framing? No, we need you to put that wood in the back of the truck. You know, that, that idea. I told myself that I could do it. It was very clear I couldn't. I still wasn't convinced though, because as they finished up, I said, you know what? I think I can paint everything myself though. So I appreciate the help of putting up the siding on the side of my house, but I've got the painting part covered. And, you know, Andy Hips looks at me and he goes, are you sure, are you sure Justin? I'm like, I promise you, no problem. If you'll just leave your ladder for me, Andy, I got it figured out. So I went and got paint at Lowe's and came back and I'm sorry, I went to Sherwin-Williams and got paint actually. Came home and uh, climbed up on top of the roof from my deck. And it's funny, in that moment, it felt like my house added another story like, very quickly. <laughs> like what? I don't remember this house being this high from the ground. And you know, I'm shaking, painting the part that's connected to my roof. And I go down and I begin to climb Andy's ladder. And as I'm climbing that ladder, I find out it's not a very heavy ladder and so it's shaking the whole way that I'm getting up there and about that time Sarah, Sarah comes out and she sees me I'm about well in, in my mind I was 150 feet off the ground that's what it, I'm pretty sure probably more like seven or eight okay I'm up here and Sarah looks at me and this is the word she gives me Justin you can't die right now it's just not going to work <laughs> we got too much ahead of us we need you to not not die right now and I'm like well Sarah I, I got to get this painted she said, Justin, don't you think that maybe those guys should be the one painting this? So I had to climb off the ladder, call Andy again and say, hey, Andy, y'all got any more freedom, you know, in your schedule to come over and paint my house? And sure enough, they showed up and finished painting it for me. But I convinced myself that I didn't need them. I could do it all on my own, that I myself was powerful. See, one of the most dangerous places for us to be is in a situation where we think that God is unable or unwilling to work, therefore we need to. When we get to that place, we're right where Satan wants us to be and we're right in a place where we can crumble. So second way we see Satan work in this passage is we see that he seeks to deceive you in feeling hopeless. He seeks to deceive you in feeling hopeless. Look at verses 29 and 30. It says, this is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He can't rescue you from my power. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to rely on the Lord, saying, certainly the Lord will rescue us. See, the king of Assyria knew that the, the siege of Jerusalem would go that much easier if they believed that there was no way out and there was nothing that they could do. If they felt like there was no hope, and here's why. People with no hope are people who have no will to fight. And if they have no will to fight, then they easily take over the city. This is the same tactic that Satan seeks to employ in our very lives. His goal was to believe that there is no way out of your current situation, that you're in a pit so deep that God cannot help you. 
And it's that very feeling of no hope, of hopelessness that destroys humans. I'll give you an example. Victor Frankl, um, maybe you've read some of his works before, but he was um, a man who survived the concentration camps during World War II. And after the World War II, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meeting. And in it, he recounts how hope for the future was the single most important factor in determining, determining whether fellow prisoners survived the concentration camps. It was all hope. And here's what he said. He said the prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Directly correlated with a feeling of hopelessness is decay. This is the exact position that Satan wants human beings to be in. If we feel hopeless, he wins. There's a book that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Screwtape Letters. Has anybody in here ever read Screwtape Letters? For those who haven't, let me explain. It is a book in which he tried to, in some ways, get in the mind of a demon. What is a demon thinking? How do they act? And it's, it, it, it's not, you know, real, but it's written from this very mindset. And it's, it's spoken of, a, it's, it's, it's written from the, um, the, the thought process of a demon training up a protege demon, teaching them how to, um, to, to hurt, hurt believers and, and, and hurt humans. And there's always been a phrase that stuck out in this book that I thought was so interesting, and I think it applies to today. It says this, It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. You see, here's what Satan wants to do. Satan doesn't necessarily have to make you feel hopeless. He just has to get the promises of hope out of your mind and then allow your mind to do the rest for him. This feeling of hopelessness is what Satan wants because it has, when you're in hopeless, you're in the palm of his hand. If he can get the promises of hope out, then you'll, you'll make up the rest. And finally, there's one last tactic that we see here, and that is that he offers us empty promises of what he can provide us. I'm going to read you two passages. I think this is so interesting. The, the spokesman says this for the king of Assyria. He says, make peace with me and surrender to me. Then each of you may eat from his own vine and his own fig tree, and each may drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, so that you may live and not die. What's he say? Hey, just surrender and you get all these good things. <laughs> When's the last time you've ever seen surrendering go well for someone? Now, this is what's interesting. Look how similar this is to what the serpent says to Adam and Eve. Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3. No, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, in both of these passages, what is being suggested is that there is something good that's being withheld from them. If they would just give it up, if they would just lean into it, then they could have everything that they've ever wanted. It's this kind of thought. If they could just, if, if, if the people here in Jerusalem, if they just opened their eyes and see clearly that they had no hope, that God was not going to save them, 
that there was a mystical land in Assyria where they were going to have fruit and honey and, and, and all these great things. If they could just see that, then they could have everything that they ever wanted. Did you know that every single one of us faced that same temptation probably almost every single day? This thought of, if we could just have this, then we'd have everything we'd ever wanted. I'll give you some examples. If I could just be with that person, then everything would make sense and I would truly experience sexual fulfillment. Or how about this? I know that the last two jobs it, it didn't do it for me, but this one, this is it. <laughs> the perfect job. Or how about this one? The next church is finally going to be the right church for me. <laughs> I know that it won't have any problems and I'm going to 100% align theologically with that church and everyone is going to be completely nice. You ever had that thought? <laughs> That's it. The perfect church. Or how about this one? I've been so stressed and you know what's going to melt that stress away and make peace with me? It's going to fulfill every longing I've had. A massive bowl of ice cream. Now that one probably is biblical if we had to be honest. As my father-in-law says, ice cream just fills in all the cracks of the soul. So. But you know this thought, even with something like food, if, oh, this right here, if I could just have this, I would have everything. All of this is empty promises from the evil one. He wants us to believe that things or people or desires can fulfill the longings of our hearts, but they can't. Nothing on this earth can. It wasn't made to. I love this quote from Augustine. He says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And as long as we continue to look at other things that he promises that can fulfill us, as we look at those, we're going to continually be restless until we find Christ and put all of our, and find complete rest in him. This is the tactics of the evil one. He wants to convince us that God is not powerful. He wants us to, to believe that we are completely hopeless he wants to make us think that there is this magical thing out there that if we just had it, oh, then we'd never want again. They're all lies. Every one of them. So the question is, how do we respond? How do we respond when those lies are being thrown at us? Let me give you two ways very quickly and we'll be done. The first way is to stand behind the Savior. When Satan is pouring out lies, what you need to do is stand behind the Savior. Verse 36 is a very interesting verse. I love this. It says, but the people kept silent. They did not answer him at all. For the king's command was, don't answer him. I love this. This spokesman is throwing out threat after threat. Even the point of saying that if they don't surrender, they're going to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine. I don't know about you, but if I'm hearing that, I'm going, you know what? Maybe Assyria ain't that bad. I mean, I can go check it out. It's got to be pretty good. And this whole time, throughout all of that, what's it say they do? It says that they kept silent. Why? Because their king told them to. What did they do? They stood behind the words of their king. Did you know that you and I can do the same thing today? See, Satan is going to continually throw lies at us. He's going to try to convince us that we're worthless that we've messed up too many times for God to still love us, that no one cares about us, that, that we could have we had true happiness if we just partake of that pleasing fruit. He's going to pour those lies out at us. But the good news for us today is that we don't have to sit there and try to defend off these fiery arrows alone from Satan. No, 
we can stand behind our Savior and we can rest in the words of our true King. In Revelation chapter 12, it's a very interesting story of Michael and the angels fighting the dragon and we learn that the dragon is Satan. It sees that they cast him out of heaven and the question then becomes, how do they beat him? It says this, they beat him by the blood of the lamb. How do we defeat the evil one today? Through the blood of the lamb. We stand behind our savior and our king. Lastly today, how do we respond? How do we fight off the evil of Satan? We wield the word. We wield the word. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God. And then he tells us to pick up a weapon. He said this weapon is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That this, the word of God is what we are called to bring into battle to fight off Satan. And isn't it interesting? How do we know it works? Because it's that very weapon that Jesus uses when he is facing Satan when he's out in the wilderness, is it not? As Satan is continually trying to convince him that, hey, you could have everything if you just came alongside me. As he's twisting scripture over and over again, Jesus continually quotes the word of God at him. Some ways you could say he quotes himself at Satan. It's that very word that he wields there. And here's my concern for us. We know that to be the case. We see it. We have this word. Many of us probably have 10 of them at our house right now. We see it every single day. But I think far too often we enter into this world every day knowing that we are entering into a battle and far too often we leave the weapon just in its sheath still. It stays there. And we wonder why. We wonder why we can't fight off the attacks of the evil one. What would happen if we chose to will the word of God? If we chose to know it, to write it on our hearts, to proclaim it at the evil one. Why? Because we know that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. We know that it has the power to cut down the devil. And if that is so, why wouldn't we use it? So Satan's going to try to work. He's going to try to be present in your life constantly, convince you of lies. Today, I tell you, you don't have to believe him because you have a savior to stand behind and you have a word to wield. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we thank you for your scriptures. God, we thank you for the study that we got to have of this passage today. God, we know the evil one is gonna come at us. Maybe for some in this room today, they are feeling the spiritual, feeling spiritual warfare right now. Oh, Father, let them know that they stand behind the blood of the lamb. Father, let them know that you've given them your word and that word has the power to cut down the evil one. We love you and we thank you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.